you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. As I start investigating Oscar's death, one of the first documents I get a hold of is his college transcript. I expect Oscar's grades to be just as good as those he received in high school, but the transcript tells a very different story. As a freshman, Oscar's averaging B's, with some A's and C's thrown in. By his junior year, there's a noticeable decline. These are his grades for the spring quarter of 1994, his last quarter at UC Davis. Mexican Chicano Mural Workshop, C+. Sociocultural Change, B-. Economic Development, F. Intro to Social Research, F. Fall quarter of 1994, those months before his death, he's not taking any classes. Oscar's status is at the bottom of the transcript. Student not in good academic standing. Oscar, what was going on in your life? And why weren't you enrolled in school in the fall 1994 quarter? Oscar's grades remind me of my own. And Oscar's declining grades mean something. I know this because I know the story behind mine. I pull up a copy of my own college transcript. It's painful to look at. I'm getting a lot of C's but there are more D's and F's than I want to admit. What's not written in the transcript is that my capacity for handling my life is being stretched to the limit, like a fraying rubber band. That I'm living with my mom, my stepfather, and my younger half-siblings, who I take care of on weekends. That it takes me an hour and a half of public transportation to get to campus. And when I get home, that I wonder whether my stepfather is having a good day or a bad day, whether he's going to yell at me for making too much noise while I chew my food during dinner, as if my very existence is an affront. My mom remembers my stepfather this way too. Fights, screaming matches, fists. And my mother is always on the losing side. Then one night in particular I think about, it's when the rubber band breaks. My stepfather is drunk, and he yells that he's going to kill me. And it all clicks for me. It's not emotion. It's just what happens when you need to survive. I throw my wallet and car keys and a change of pants, shirt, and underwear into a backpack. I tell my mom I'm leaving, and she says not to go. But there's something different now. For one of the few times I remember up to that point, I willfully defy what she's telling me to do. My memory's hazy. I couldn't tell you where I sleep that night. I end up crashing on friends' couches for a while. It's my last few months at UCSD, and suddenly, I don't have a commute. I have time to myself, and I have mental space. And by my last quarter, in winter of 1993, my grades pick up. I finally graduate. This is what's in between the lines of my own transcript. I had the chance to turn around my academics, but Oscar didn't. 
Is there something in the trajectory of his college years that can help me understand his death? My investigation into Oscar's death will take me up and down the state of California. But the quest begins close to my home in L.A. County, talking to two people who lived some formative experiences with Oscar. Those two people will push me closer to understanding his rise into activism and its costs, and how that could have led to his death. I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez, and this is Imperfect Paradise, the Forgotten Revolutionary. I'm back at Oscar's grave at Resurrection Cemetery, east of downtown Los Angeles. This time, to meet Oscar's childhood friend, Ricardo Tapia. But someone else has beat us here. Wait a second, what's going on here? I see some chairs. Well, I, I knew you guys were coming in, so I set it up so you guys could find it easy. Yeah. That's Oscar's dad, Oscar Gomez Sr. He's arranged on the grass a couple of camping chairs next to a blue cooler big enough for a six-pack. I feel like it's the 4th of July. This is very, very kind of you. Thank huh? you. I'm curious, how did you find out we were coming? <laughs> uh, Presidente called me. Presidente? Uh, that's Ricardo Tapia, Oscar's <laughs> friend. He's coming over. I feel good that Oscar Gomez Sr. wants to be involved. And since he's getting more comfortable with me, but I also have this feeling I'm being watched. Tell me, Mr. Gomez, I mean... Your son's buried here, but why did you want to be here today when we interviewed Ricardo? Because I, I, I don't want to miss the conversations that you guys are going to have. I'll never get tired of hearing people talk about my son. It just makes him feel like he's alive still. Ricardo shows up. He's tall, broad-shouldered. He's using both arms to carry a box full of high school memorabilia. Oscar, I've known Oscar. Oh, my goodness. I met him in... Um, Honor band, junior high. He played the tuba, I played the tuba. See, there's different phases of Oscar. I knew Oscar from junior high. Goofy, big old poofy head, tight pants, <laughs> you know, a little belly. And then, you know, Oscar the athletic Oscar, like, I'm a defensive captain, we're gonna, we're gonna lead here, we're gonna take charge, we're gonna hit somebody, play some smash mouth football. And then you have the academic Oscar. Academic Oscar was like, hey, let's get down to business. Let's do, I want straight A's, advanced classes, everything. Okay, Ricardo, I'm, I'm looking at uh, the 1990 yearbook, which is your senior year, yeah. and I opened it. So describe <laughs> what's going on in this one. We flip to Oscar's photo in the yearbook. Jean jacket with a fleece collar, watermark of a mustache, mullet, and a big grin. This yeah. is, that's got to be uh, the friendliest or flirtiest. Let me see what the heck. Oh, uh, it says most talkative. Most talkative. There's also a note from Oscar to Ricardo. Uh, okay, to Slick Rick. Yeah, that's what they call me, Slick Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, buddy, what more can I say other than the year is over? Just stay cool, uh, Holmes, and thanks for being my friend. Remember, shoot for the stars and don't uh, let your let anyone control your life. <laughs> if you want to be... Uh, President, yeah. you got my vote, bud. Take care. Oscar Enrique Gomez. If anyone can, a Mexican. He used to always say that. <laughs> they used to call me uh, Presidente. 
president because I was going to be the first Mexican president. <laughs> That's Oscar Gomez Sr. chuckling behind me. Then, about 10 minutes into the interview, he leaves. I don't know it yet, but this is how a lot of my interactions with Oscar Gomez Sr. will be. Kind of hot and cold. Sometimes it feels like he wants to be my investigative partner, and sometimes he seems to want to leave this story in the past. But it's time for me to start asking Ricardo about the more difficult things in Oscar's life, especially at UC Davis. What, what conversations did you have with him about, about what was hard about college? Oscar, was, he, was, uh, he, was, he was much smarter than I was. I, I don't think coursework was a problem for him. I think it was the racial conflicts that exist that they don't really talk about, especially UC Davis. UC Davis, it's, it's isolated. What Ricardo Tapia is dancing around here is that UC Davis was very white. In 1990, over half of the student population was white. Only 8% of undergrads identified as Hispanic or Latino. Ricardo says Oscar felt lonely, and he acted out. That was when he had the problems. Yeah, he, he stole a, um, uh, a little golf cart. Yeah. And he caught him out. The police, the, the campus security got him. And they notified his, his, his counselor. He kind of stumbled into the radio thing. It wasn't like it was what he was going to do. He just kind of stumbled into it because it was, his counselor said, hey, you got to do something. You got to stay busy. And he got an internship doing the, at, the, at the radio station. It's surprising to hear that Oscar's radio career started as a sort of punishment. So, so when did you hear from him that it was getting better, if you ever heard that from him? I would probably say um, uh, 90, 91, at the end of 91, because his first semester, they were dragging him in to join Mecha. Mecha is a student organization that came out of the Chicano activism of the late 1960s. Ricardo wasn't there when Oscar joined Mecha because he and Oscar went to different colleges. But another student on Oscar's campus, Judith Segura Mora, was at UC Davis in the fall of 1990. It was my second year at UC Davis. Somehow I found myself as the recruiter at the table for Mecha, which is the Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Atzalan, which is a student body that was there to to promote a cultural uh, experience for undergraduate students in Chicano culture. And I put my table up, and there were probably about, you know, 10 other organizations that were there to recruit Chicano Latino students into our organizations. We all had our game face on, right, to try and bring in the new freshmen. <laughs> and I recall a big, like, guy some gear on. I remember because I realized like this guy is an athlete. And so I see Oscar coming to the table and it, he puts his hands on the table and he just looks at me like dead in the eyes and he says so tell me why should I join? And he looks at the table and you know tries to see what the name is. <laughs> he doesn't even know what he's walking up to. He says why should I join Mecha? <laughs> And what'd you say? What was your pitch? <laughs> I just looked at him. Do we really want this guy in Mecha? Maybe he belongs with the pseudo-fraternities, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. So that's the first response that came out. Like, you know, if you want a party, if you want an organization that's just social, then by all means, 
go to the next table. So I was just trying to, like, trying to convince them to keep walking. Ricardo Tapia remembers Oscar telling him about that day, too. And I remember him calling me and telling me, hey, they're trying to pull me in. I don't want to do this. I want to focus on my school. But Oscar did go to that Metro meeting, and he got deeper and deeper into activism. That's after the break. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alleyest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. I hope you'll indulge me here, but I think to understand what Oscar was fighting for and why it meant so much to me, I have to give you some historical context. Oscar and I were both coming of age during a nativist backlash in California's early 1990s. A backlash that had its immediate roots in the decade or so before. Immigration to California from Mexico and Central America had peaked in the late 1980s. There was overcrowding in public schools. And to top it off, in 1991, there was a recession. Many conservatives blamed California's issues on undocumented immigrants, which culminated in Prop 187, a proposal to take away from undocumented immigrants social services like health care and public schools. When Oscar started hosting La Onda Chicana, he talked about these politics on the air. No somos los extranjeros, you know, we're not, you know, strangers in our own land, even though we're made to feel that way, you know, with all these policies that Wilson is trying to push in the, you know, the California gobierno, tú sabes, and it's important to saber lo que anda pasando, because when we start seeing walls, you know, Ras, especially walls, you know, on the freeway dividers and walls on the frontera, you know, the, the military, the National Guard, you know, all these kind of, uh, the army, tú sabes, in our own tierra, is something that make, you know, people, it, it makes living conditions pretty rough for the gente. Hear that righteous anger? I didn't feel as empowered to do that. What overshadowed so much of my college years was fear and instability. Because when Oscar spoke on behalf of undocumented immigrants, he was speaking up for people like me. Yes, I had been undocumented. So that nativist backlash, it felt like it was aimed directly at me. Just listen to this 1994 re-election ad from California's Republican governor, Pete Wilson. They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. Governor Pete Wilson sent the National Guard to help the Border Patrol. The ad shows grainy footage of people running across the San Diego-Tijuana border. 
the border that defined so much of my childhood. I grew up in Tijuana. When I was just a little kid, my mom and I would cross that border every weekday morning. I knew to tell the border agent, vamos de compras. We were going shopping. Every day. Then my mom would go to clean houses, and I would go to the public school nearby. When I was seven, we crossed the border for good. My mother and I overstayed our tourist visa and moved in with my stepfather. There was no running. One day we lived in Tijuana, and the next day I lived in National City, south of San Diego. I never told a single teacher or classmate. I wish I had, just to get it off my chest. But I'd been trained early to keep secrets. My senior year of high school, I was at a crossroads, trying to decide if I should apply to colleges in the U.S. or if I should go back to Tijuana. I had signed up for the required military service in Mexico, just in case. And then, in 1986... This bill, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 that I'll sign in a few minutes, is the most comprehensive reform of our immigration laws since 1952. It's the product of one of the longest and most difficult legislative undertakings. President Ronald Reagan signed into law the Immigration Reform and Control Act, known as Amnesty, which legalized nearly three million undocumented immigrants in the country, including me. Suddenly, a future in the U.S. came into focus for me for the first time. It was such a weight off my shoulders, tempered by disbelief. Was this for real? I went to college, but I'd been undocumented for so long that I couldn't wear my identity proudly. Not in the way Oscar wore his. I was fearful of telling people my story, still unsure of my place in this country. I was not fully American and not fully Mexican. And then I encountered the term Chicano. I want to pour like rain into you and make your heart mine. And let the locomotives of the city run forever. Wild squirrels dancing in the park, Chicano singing. El florecer de la raza, the flowering of the people, y el brillar de nuestro sexto sol será. And the brilliance of our sixth sun shall be. Mexicano, viva! Español, viva! Latino, viva! Whatever I call myself, I look the same, I feel the same, I cry and I sing the same. I am the masses of my people and I refuse to be absorbed. It was a word many Mexican-American organizers, writers, and artists used in the 60s to define themselves as politically conscious. And it was also a third space for people who weren't just Mexican or just American. People like me. At first, the term didn't inspire me. It made me feel like I was compromising my Mexican identity, that adopting one would take away from the other. I still heard in my head the word pocho, a word used in Mexico to describe someone who's forgotten the language and culture after leaving. But then I saw that being Chicano was very much about that moment in the early 1990s. Listen to the Chicano rap group Aslan Underground, 
performing at a demonstration in 1991. Their anger, their message. Yet in our own land, we are prevented from going into higher education. We are prevented from having the type of professors that we need like Rudy Acuna. So check this out. It's a source of 500 years of oppression, which has kept our raza down and reduced us to second-class citizens. And this is why we come out to educate and bring this message to you of self-determination, decolonization, and liberation. Check it. Go. Oh yeah, all the proud people in the house, I want you all to put a big old fist of resistance in the air. I wait like you just don't care. Chicano sounded like resistance to celebrating Columbus Day, resistance to Prop 187, resistance to the erasure of Chicano studies on college campuses. I joined the UC San Diego Chicano student newspaper Voz Fronteriza, and when I covered an August 1990 march in East L.A., it opened my eyes to what Chicanos were fighting for at that moment. I was on the sidelines, though, covering the story, but not participating. Maybe it was that undocumented mindset. I think of Oscar and his confidence, his leadership, and behind that I see the stability of his family life, his unquestionable Americanness. If you feel like you belong here, then it validates your fight to change things for the better. Houdith says Oscar was doing just that as he got more involved with Mecha. From the moment you met Oscar, he would give you his hand, like a Mecha handshake. <laughs> it's a certain handshake. Give you his hand and it was solid. And then a hug, not defensive at all, just open. So now Oscar was a natural leader. Ever since I've known him, since junior high, high school, college, he was a leader on our football team. He was a leader in classes. By the second semester of 91, he was already there and he was already leading the chapter. Soon after that, Oscar's reach starts outgrowing his college campus. That's after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Did you ever attend any marches that he was at or anything like that? That was one of our main things. He was down here quite often. Uh, Eventually, his dad gave him a little car. We call call it the Tangerine. It was was a little B210, little Datsun B210 that could barely run. 
it, it didn't even make it up the hill one time up the grapevine so that's how bad the little car was but he was happy in that little car and it was a tangerine color so we called it the tangerine so he would take that up and down the coast and then i had a little truck the scene is so clear oscar driving the tangerine down the central valley and up the California coast to join marches for the Chicano movement. Ricardo shows me some photos of him and Oscar at these protests. One is from the United Farm Workers' reenactment of the pilgrimage that Cesar Chavez did from Delano to Sacramento. So we did the pilgrimage, and we actually marched literally on the street, on the dead, you know, country roads, 26 miles a day. There, that's actually from a, a march we did in San Diego. That was an anti-Christopher Columbus march. And at this time, Oscar was already getting deeper, deeper into indigenous, in, indigenous roots. He, just, he, didn't, he didn't want to just know the history. He wanted to know the spiritual aspect as to why, why our ancestors did certain things. To all you young warriors out there, the war is not within yourselves. You know, Norte y Sur juntos is Aslan. It's the poder and the power of the raza. And Sasuke, one big tribe the proud indigenous gente fighting for hope, esperanza, and respeto. Que no raza? Isn't that what, we're, what it's all about? It's all about respect and respeto. And finding our other side, our indigenous cultura, and not just to throw it up and say, oh yeah, that's the, you know, that's, it's just the thing with that is that a lot of it doesn't get told to it. We never get told about our indigenous side of our cultura, our indigenous side of our gente. This embrace of indigenous beliefs led Oscar and a lot of other Chicano activists to adopt the view that the Southwest United States is occupied territory, stolen from the Mexican people in the U.S.-Mexican War. Chant, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, was on posters, T-shirts, and in Chicano rap lyrics. For a people who are told to go back from where they came from, this was a powerful idea. Because where we came from is right here. Oscar's friend, Judith Segura Mora, says that as Oscar was getting deeper into Chicano politics, his look changed too. If you watch him around campus, walking around campus, he would he looked like a cholo. They didn't belong on the UC Davis campus because he had his his Pendleton on, he had his cap. What's the saying? Like judge judge the book by the cover. He wanted that. He wanted people to judge him so that he can disrupt the thinking around intellectual people can come from all backgrounds. Because he was a, a educated Chicano, and he didn't he didn't um, distinguish himself from the uneducated. I have to admit, my own bias against cholo-looking dudes kicked in when I first met Oscar. I was still holding on to button-down beliefs about respectability, but for Oscar, the look worked. Oscar would walk around at the events. He'd walk around with a cassette and a microphone, and he would walk around interviewing people. Hey, what did you think about the march? Why are you here? What, you know, what are you protesting? He would take that material, take it back to his radio show. It's like a comfort to hear that smooth intro all the time, and he always started with that. 
Aquí nomás, yo cruzin la onda chicana, la música del barrio aquí nomás, volando con ustedes, su servidor, el bandido aquí nomás, en 90.3 KDBS 90.3 KDBS, aquí nomás, rifando de puta toy, California. And I just remember being in my room and having that connection without physically being there, but tuning in to the campus radio station and... And it was a trust, a level of trust. Kind of like, you know, when you when you open up a book of, of, of an author, you already know it's a good author, and you're just like, can't wait. Part of it, it was educating, educating the, the, the public. The other part was his own political agenda. And then it's also like an enjoyment of just the pure art of being on the radio and the grabbing people's attention. Bienvenido a la programa. We're going to be here, you know, talking a little bit more about la música, you know, throwing some rolitas out there, some dedicaciones, you know, nomás circulando un poco información de la historia, you know, talking a little bit more of the lucha and the street of the juventud, as we talk a little bit more about the issues affecting the gente out there in las calles, en los barrios de Aslan, 752-2777. Órale, pues. Man, Oscar was good, which makes it even harder for me to admit that I was also doing college radio at the same time. 500 miles south, at the UC San Diego campus, I got behind the mic to join the Chicano resistance. This is your compañero Chintolas. Welcome to another Sunday edition of Radio Califas here on KSDT 95.7 FM Cable from the University of Califas here in La Joya. That is me. Yes, it is. Doesn't my voice sound about two octaves higher? The goal of Radio Califas is to provide information and entertainment on issues pertinent to the Chicano Latino community in San Diego. Radio Califas provides an alternative to the inaccurate and unbalanced portrayal of Chicanos and Latinos in mainstream media and also provides a forum for debate on Chicano-Latino politics. We welcome community input to make the program... Chintolas was my microphone name. I was trying so hard. I had in my mind the Mexico City TV news anchors I grew up watching. Suit and tie, formal language, members of the elite class. Maybe that's why I sounded so stiff. Oscar was smooth and melodic. My college radio station had a very limited reach, but Oscar's radio signal broadcast far across the wide farmlands of Sacramento, into the nearby prison, and into the suburbs. All right, good old Woodland, California. The suburbs of Sacramento. Woodland is where I meet Rosanna Polanco Fierro. Good, how are you? My name's Adolfo. I'm the uh, host and writer of the podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rosanna. 
she brings out a giant box filled with 30-year-old recorded cassettes of La Onda Chicana, Oscar's show. Wow, look at that. You got, there's a lot in there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, so most of them are labeled and I know that they're his. Rosanna recorded Oscar's show almost every week for years. Una línea en vivo, that's why everything's squeaking, tú sabes, pero quién sabe por qué, pero <laughs> we'll get this thing done, tú sabes. So, uh, we'll get throw a rolita out there for you, homegirl. Okay. All right, and this is uh, para toda la gente out there que se quedan cumpliendo la, los cumpleaños, and for all the people out there, pues big old cubazo, and here's the rola, homegirl. Okay. Órale, pues. <laughs> hey, has someone born in Mexico? I listen to that Norteño, and it taps into something inside of me. Rosanna is a fifth-generation Mexican-American. Her grandmother is the last person she remembers speaking Spanish to her. She met Oscar when she was 12, during a school field trip to UC Davis. That's how she learned about his show. And from there, she became a devoted listener. I was listening every week. Like, our family would go on vacation. I'd be like, no, like, I want to listen because it's on Sunday. And my mom was excited to hear his, you know, show because she liked the oldies. And um, that's how I was introduced more so to the culture. Like, I mean, Mexican music, oldies, like, um, more like Latin rock type music. Um, And then the history. I mean, he was talking about, you know, Governor Pete Wilson and Prop 187. And I'm the three quotes I always remember that he said a lot were, um, aquí estamos y no no nos vamos. You know, we're here um, and we're not going anywhere. And then there was, um, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. And uh, he called like 4th of July, like 4th of July. (laughs) So, um, and we would talk about it at school. Like, oh, did you listen? Wow. Yeah. Sounds like what you're saying, sounds like what I'm hearing, is that he tapped into something inside of you culturally? What was that? So I think it was kind of like a piece of me that I didn't know, like a piece of my culture that I didn't know that I wasn't being taught by family. You know, I didn't really know the odds were really against, uh, you know, people that look like me. Brown, you know, had the Spanish last names. Like, I just didn't know. Um, even the Spanish part, like, I didn't really know Spanish, but I learned I learned through him. I would ask my grandma, like, what does this mean? Or what is he saying? Or even my friends at school, like, you know, and so I got a little familiar with it. Rosanna says she still channels Oscar sometimes when she's explaining difficult current events to her sons or in her job as a social worker. Oscar's friend, Ricardo Tapia, says Oscar was inspired by the outlaw archetype, like El Bandido Joaquin Murrieta, the 19th century Mexican outlaw who evaded white cowboy vigilantes in California. El Bandido became Oscar's radio moniker. 
But Oscar wasn't just an educator either. He was a mobilizer. Here's Ricardo. He was mass media before there was what we have today. Because one phone call from him, hey, there's a marcha in San Diego over here. We're going to be there. Can you guys be there? Can you back us up? All right. If, if Bandido said, hey, this is what's going to happen. Hey, I'm going to be there. Or, hey, are we invited? Hey, can we go? Can we report? It opened doors. Did somebody say something or were you in an environment where, like, they were talking about him and you realized, oh, this guy's famous? We went to uh, self-help graphics, graphics in East L.A. And it was an event. He wasn't even there. But people that knew him said, hey, say hi to Bandido for me. Oh, hey, where do you guys go to school? Oh, New York. Like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a long way. How'd you guys meet him? Yeah, we, we went to March over there, and then we heard his radio show. We're like, whoa, all the way from New York, you went over there and you heard him? It's like, yeah, man, that guy's, he's something else. Oscar, you're taking that inner fire that you'd brought to sports and academics in high school and bringing it to the Chicano movement, to your radio show. But I'm looking at your grades and I'm thinking of your death. I'm also thinking about the amount of alcohol found in your blood during your autopsy. Oscar, who were you in your last year of life? That is after the break. Arole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Limerick Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on, so we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Oscar Gomez is rising through the ranks of the Chicano student movement. But there's a consequence to devoting so much time and headspace to activism. Here's Oscar's college friend, Judith Segura Mora. Like, I know that drive to create an ideal utopia also marginalized us because we no longer wanted to participate in the facade of a society that was diverse and that was including us but not respecting us for who we were. Which, in retrospect, I know that's very isolationist. Oscar had come to UC Davis to earn a degree, but Houdith says his activism took over his life. This is my opinion, my opinion alone, that Oscar was on a wrong path at the end of his life. He was no longer focused on his academics. He was kind of lost in that, in the rage. Like wanting so badly to do something about it that it's like blindsided that you start to lose sense of your own responsibilities to yourself, to your future. These days, Students who feel overwhelmed by their activism often post on social media about self-care. After actions and protests, people check in with themselves. They talk about stepping back. Did you have self-care back then? I would say not. Did you need it? I did need it. I did need it. Because there were many times that I wouldn't, I wouldn't get out of bed 
I wouldn't have, I mean, it was depression, probably, you know, clinically depressed, but I didn't know that those were, that that, that was the language to call it. I didn't know. I just realized that it was an overwhelming emotional uh, burden that I felt. And I didn't. As a result, I, as a result of. I think it's wanting to do so much. Hudith says she and Oscar were spending days on end every week on the movement. And there were victories. Hudith says Mecha pushed for a multicultural center at the UC Davis campus. And they got it. But for students with a full course load, even the victories are exhausting. I remember that too. Pulling all-nighters when we had to finish designing and laying out an issue of Vos Fronteriza, my Chicano college newspaper, and going to marches out of town. The cost was that for multiple years, I was subject for academic disqualification. It's just the personal strain that you go through to the conflict also as an academic student, like you, all of that protesting and organizing takes time away from your academic work. You gave me examples of, um, you know, not, not getting out of bed and, and you gave me examples for yourself. What are some examples of Oscar going through something like that? You know, the jolly kid that came up to me that freshman year, he became very serious, like, angry. You know, people people who weren't for the Chicano movement were technically against you. We became more marginalized because everything was so serious. Everything. Like someone would make a comment and you had to call them out on it. It was like a dogma to it that was that was not healthy. It was not healthy because then you always were on defense mode. You became like this you know, everything was problematic because it was all part of the system. It creates anxiety. It creates like this overwhelming burden that then you're always on guard. Like, how do we get, how do we survive? And the unfortunate part is that he didn't. That's the, that's the, that's the, That's the hardest part for me, because I think it could have happened to, to any of us that were involved in that period. It's so easy to lose yourself in a cause, but also in trying to escape from its pressures. Sometimes substance abuse was a part of student activist culture. Hudith says she tried to check Oscar once, uh, just once. It was just a college party, like the, like, stop drinking, stop smoking, marijuana. What did he say to you? I can handle it. They always say that. <laughs> and, and, you know, marijuana back then was part of the, the red road, they called it. <laughs> part of the native roots. It's comes from the earth, you know, it expands your mind. But wait a second, was Oscar just smoking just here, a little bit here and there? No, it was a lot. When was his drinking a real problem? When did you notice it to be a problem? Um, when, he, uh, when he got an accident in Davis. That's Ricardo Tapia again. He rolled the tangerine 
he rolled it off country road and he and, and i remember him telling me he says i i saw the owls and if you don't know what the owls in 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 native american and even in in, in uh uh central american mesoamerican cultures the owl is a messenger of death and he says i don't have a lot of time he knew i said brother you just it, it was just an owl they're common up there whether they're common or not i don't know i just told them that just to calm him down and i i want to say that was uh like maybe a month and a half before he died we don't know for sure if oscar was drinking the night he rolled the tangerine and i want to say that me raising these questions isn't about alcohol shaming or saying what happened to Oscar is his fault. Drinking and smoking in college is what a lot of young people do. But Oscar, I do wonder if you felt you were on the wrong track, if that's why you fixated on the owl. What's your theory about how Oscar died? It's definitely not a suicide. Because I imagine that that's not something I would do if I were walking in his shoes. Given that I walked the many paths that he walked, suicide was not one of those options. And he loved his mom and his dad. He would never do that to them. A very real possibility that makes me feel like more at ease is that it was an accident, that he was disoriented, but there were characteristics that were not consistent with an accidental fall. Blunt trauma to the head, no broken bone, no other scrape. So if it wasn't an accidental fall, what happened? Next, we try to get close to the last person to see Oscar Gomez alive. Then they knew who killed him. Then they knew who killed Oscar with his buddies from a hazard. Who is Nene? What did he know about what happened to Oscar? That's where our investigation takes us in the next episode. Perfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary is written, reported, and hosted by me, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. The show is a production of LAS Studios. Antonia Cerejido and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Natalie Chudnowski is the lead producer. And our associate producers are James Chow and Francisco Avilespino. Editing by Audrey Quinn. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Mixing by our engineer, E. Scott Kelly. Our music supervisor is Doris Anahi Munoz. The music is written, performed, and recorded by Joseph Quinones at Secondhand Studios in Rialto, California. Our website, LAS.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAS Studios. The marketing team of LAS Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, Emily Guerin, and Leo G. Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary, is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. 
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming and six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.